Hilltops of Glory. What a joyous song as we come together tonight and as a part of our worship service. As we, of course, lift our voices in a collective way as we have done and certainly enjoy doing. We also have the privilege of devoting a portion of our worship time to a consideration of the Word of God and to reflect on some section of it. And certainly we hope that that's to our benefit and to our blessing, for certainly that's the way God intended it. As you may have already noted, tonight's lesson will be more of an overview character as we cast a spotlight on the 66th book of the Bible. I would invite you to open your Bible to the book of Revelation, and as we take the next few minutes tonight to at least in a rather broad stroke approach, give some appreciation to the major matters, the principal issues connected with that wonderful and last book of the Bible. In many ways, I suppose any book of the Bible could be profitably considered that way, and certainly some of the prophet books of the Old Testament would nicely fall in that category. But surely the book of Revelation would also be one that could be of great blessing to us in that regard. As we begin the lesson this evening, the opening introduction I might just uh, present in the following way, the New Testament in its 27 books, is divided rather conveniently into four major groupings or categories, one of them being, of course, the four gospel accounts, in which one is able to reflect upon and study the greatest life ever lived, the life of Jesus Christ our Lord. And in the course of those books, of course, one learns many truths about not only the way he lived, but what he taught. And yet one arrives in at the book of Acts, in that book, you learn how to appropriate to yourself the benefits of the life you've just studied. The life of Christ is such that the blessings are appropriated as one obeys the gospel and becomes a Christian. And in the book of Acts, we have a host of examples of those who did that. And as we've often noted, if we do today what they did then, surely we will enjoy and become today what they became then. But once one becomes a Christian... There are then 21 books that follow from Romans through Jude that detail how to live every day the life of a Christian, how one thinks and talks and behaves and acts and what one pursues and supports and follows. And thus, as you arrive at those, at 20, that's 26 New Testament books in total, there's only one book left, the book of Revelation, the hope of a Christian, how to die in Christ and go home to glory. That's all that's left. And so the book of Revelation is a book of impressive triumph. It is a book of overwhelming confidence. It is a book that shines so brilliantly in light of that which is the destiny and the victory of Christianity. And so tonight as we overview that book, you might note it has 22 chapters and hence we'll not devote much time to each chapter admittedly, but we'll strive to appreciate many of the major truths as they appear by selecting various brief passages out of each one of those books. Now, as we start that, we arrive at chapter number 1, and may I at least offer the thought that in chapter 1 there are some critical matters which will be vital to the overall approach that is to be taken to the book. And so, for example, in verse number 1 of chapter 1, we find that God delivered the revelation to Jesus, who in turn shared it with the angel, who in turn delivered it to John, who sent it to those who would be its recipients. So a set of five relaying that wonderful message of truth, the revelation. 
Maybe it's vital to notice that the revelation, the actual word in Greek is the apocalypse, which means the unveiling, the revealing. Here, the final revelation of God to mankind is presented. How beautiful, how powerful, how exquisite in so many ways. And thus, you might quickly notice in verse number 3, a great blessing is pronounced upon those who read and hear and put into practice that which is contained in this book. On occasion, we today might be told, well, you can't understand Revelation. They're wrong about that. For a blessing is pronounced upon those who do put it into practice. You have to understand it in order to put its teachings into practice. And thus, in verses 5-7 through of that opening chapter, we are observed the following tremendous matter. In description of Jesus the Christ, it is said that, of course, we are washed from our sins in His blood. How are we freed from our sins? By being washed in His blood. Two verses later in Revelation 1-7, He is coming back, and every eye shall see Him. It won't be a selected few in a supposed rapture. Every eye, the text says, will see Him. What a great day that, in fact, is going to be. And therefore, in verse number 8, He is called the Alpha and the Omega. In English, we'd say from A to Z, He is what imparts meaning to everything connected to this life and everything with hope for the life hereafter. In Revelation 1.11, John, what you see, write in a book. And thus, we now appreciate that John saw in panoramic view the portrayal of the truths which he then recorded. What you see. It's almost as if he was sitting in the audience and the play on the stage was what the, the book of Revelation was acted out. And John was told to write it down. And when you and I read today what he wrote then, we can see the play just as well as he could. And we can appreciate the tremendous character of what in fact it was. Chapter 1 closes with these observations. That same Lord, the one who is in the midst of His churches, Revelation 1.12, is the same one who just like was true about the three Hebrew children in Daniel chapter 3. It is He who walks with His faithful children even through the furnace of affliction. It is He who has the keys of Hades and hell. It is He who thus is able to provide us the deliverance from all the things about us. And so in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we notice specific letters written to seven churches in Asia. These particular churches I've listed for you at the bottom of the slide. And in order, at least in the order in which they are addressed, we have the letter to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Maybe it would be fair in that connection to look at a map in which we can actually appreciate somewhat of the placement of them. And therefore, on this next slide, I would ask you to notice, again, that particular map. You'll notice that in many ways, starting at the bottom left, at Ephesus, you move upward to Smyrna, and from there upward again to Pergamos, and then slightly down to the right to Thyatira, and then that same pattern appreciates again through finally Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And one by one, as those congregations are addressed, they are given a report card, specific messages which were directed to them concerning not only their behavior and what they had done, 
but in some instances what would befall them in the times that were ahead of them. Ephesus was highly committed in many ways. They were one who had tried those who said they were apostles, but they had discovered them to be false. They thus had utilized the Word of God to appreciate many matters, but of course they'd left their first love. And that was the main thing which the Master said, you've got to repent of this. To the church at Smyrna, we noticed that they too were rather quickly told, I know your works. This rather startling message was given to them. You're about to be cast into prison for ten days. You're going to endure tremendous affliction. But then, perhaps the most memorable text in all of Revelation is found, Be thou faithful until death, and I'll give thee a crown of life. Even in the midst of that kind of persecution, they nonetheless needed to be faithful and true and loyal to the Master, and they would overcome to that church at Pergamos. Oh, what a difficult position they were in. That's where Satan's seat was. He had a stronghold in the city of Pergamos. And in fact, so dire were the circumstances there that even Antipas, one of the faithful servants of the Lord, had been martyred and put to death there. The master nonetheless said, Despite the fact you're in these difficult circumstances, things are not well with you. You have some there that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, and I hate it. You see, God, Jesus Christ, He doesn't uphold false doctrine. He despises it. And therefore today, we too have to be mindful of the truth and the conviction that must be given with regard to it. We quickly observed to the church at Thyatira, oh, they had a Jezebel in their midst, one who in fact encouraged falsity in the form of idolatry and fornication. Jesus one more time said, I will not tolerate this sort of thing. Thus, we find the admonition, you've got to repent. We seemingly see many times the statement, you've got to repent, the necessity of it. And doesn't that remind us again today of the needfulness of that? To the church at Sardis, as chapter 3 begins, that church had a name they were living, but they were dead. And isn't that a stirring thought? They had a name, there was a name perhaps given to where they were assembling, but they were a dead church. That's a bit disturbing, isn't it? The Lord one more time said, you've got to change this. You again have to draw back to the character of what you once had held with such ardency. And in so doing, I will again accept and welcome you back. To the church at Philadelphia, they were small. I would suppose this to be one of the most encouraging passages in all the New Testament to a congregation that might not be large in number. The Lord said, I know you're small, but I've put a door before you. It's a door you can't open, and it's a door you can carry out the required work that I've given you. And so that little church, though little they were, they were strong and mighty because they were connected to God. That still can be true. We close all of this with the church at Laodicea. We all remember that congregation. They made the Lord sick. He said, I wish you were either cold or hot, but because you're neither one, I'll vomit you out of my mouth. They thought they had everything, but they had nothing. And doesn't that remind us, without the Lord, we too have nothing. At that point, the, the brief letters to the seven churches are finished. 
but yet we have the rest of the book to go. And all the rest of this book is a centerpiece. It's a reminder, a set of presentations whereby not only the truth to those people was presented, but by inspiration, of course, it means so very much to us as well. Let's journey into chapter number 4. As we do that, we now find that these were the things that were descriptive of the times hereafter. We find that not only in Revelation 1.19, but also Revelation 4 verse 1. Now when I say hereafter, may we quickly keep in mind, twice in this book it was said, these are things which must shortly come to pass. I understand rather well that there are some throughout the ages who have tried to use Revelation to talk about solely the end of time and solely the issues surrounding the second coming of the Master. And there are passages which do refer to that. But the bulk of the book really discusses things which were shortly to come to pass, meaning they were to begin to unfold in the lifetime of those who first received this book. You again might notice Revelation 1 verses 3 and 4 and Revelation 22 verses 6 through 10. But as we again journey into chapter 4, remember, John, what you see right in the book, John, this is what I saw. He sees this beautiful throne with a rainbow over it, and it's all set in heaven. And as John sees this, he quickly observes there are 24 elders surrounding this marvelous throne, and there are four living creatures. As all of this is described, John is rather quickly amazed and impressed at what he witnesses in light of these events. May we pause to say this. Those beleaguered, persecuted saints who first received this book, many of them were in positions such that they'd been arrested for their faith. They would soon be put to death for it. They would soon perhaps be marched out to death at dawn some morning, and maybe they too in their mind could envision this throne and the marvelous rainbow over it. Remember, the rainbow from Genesis 9 was a promise that God is true to His Word. He's never again allowed the earth to be flooded with water like He did in the days of Noah. And that was the promise of the rainbow. Here, the rainbow in heaven is another reminder God is true to His Word. We may lose our life upon this earth for our loyalty to the Lord, but what a way to die to then go home to glory. What a way to lose our life here if the life afterward, as promised by God, is so wonderful and so great. Those saints needed to hear that, and don't we need it too? And so in chapter 4, verse number 8, John hears among that grouping, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And this is the anthem that they loudly shout and pronounce over and over and over again. The holiness of God. And so in verses 10 and 11 of that chapter, aren't we reminded again about God's perfection in creation and the fact that He is worthy to be praised for it. John quickly in chapter 5 sees this. Sitting on that throne that he had just seen in chapter 4 is of course God the Father. But in His right hand is a book. It's a book sealed seven times. John is very anxious to know what's in the book, as I'm sure any of us would be. You can again imagine that on the stage, here is God sitting on the throne holding a book, and it's clear that the book contains vital information. 
Because again, it's sealed seven times. Many of those in the ancient world would seal a book once, maybe once or twice in light of the significance of it. To be sealed seven times meant that it was absolutely essential. It was vital. And it contained in it the overwhelming presentation and pursuit of truth throughout the ages beginning then. John was quick to wonder, Who in heaven is worthy to open the book by loosing its seals? He was quickly told, There's nobody in earth or heaven worthy to to loose the seals and open the book. John says, I began to cry a lot. John thought the book was about to end about the time it started. We're only in chapter 5, you see. John says, I wept much. But then suddenly one of those living creatures said, John, weep not, for the lion, L-I-O-N, of the tribe of Judah hath prevailed and is worthy to loose the seals and open the book. Suddenly John's fears are calmed. Who is this lion of the tribe of Judah? The next verse says, This lion turned into a lamb. You and I know who the lamb is. John 1.29, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. That lion of the tribe of Judah, borrowing the language of Genesis 49.10, that lion is Jesus. Didn't the Hebrew writer tell us in Hebrews 7.14 that he sprang out of Judah? Jesus is the only one in all of history and all of time, either before or after, worthy to take the book, to loose the seals, and to reveal the contents. Only Jesus can provide meaning to history. Only Jesus can provide meaning to the future. And thus, one by one, we appreciate that He's about to loose the seals. But first, one final thought about chapter 5. In chapter 5, verse 12, we have an anthem descriptive of Jesus. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain, to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing, a sevenfold pronouncement of the worthiness of Jesus. How great He was, how great He is. And thus, we now launch into chapter number 6. And as we proceed to the next slide, we appreciate in it that the first four of the seven seals are loosed very rapidly. In fact, in the opening few verses of this chapter, and let's highlight them because as the centerpieces of these seals are loosed, it involves horses and somewhat riders. As the first seal is loosed, John, what do you see riding a book? He sees a white horse and one on it that conquers and is able to conquer. That reminds us of, at that time, the procession of victory of the Roman Empire. How that they at that time seemed unbeatable. They were able to conquer and to have their way with things and nations and peoples upon earth. But then, just as quickly as that seal is loosed, we now see another. The second seal is loosed. John, what do you see? Write it in a book. This time he sees a red horse. And we quickly are given a description of a great deal of blood. With the success of the Roman Empire would come a great deal of bloodshed, a great deal of military warfare and victory, and many lives would be lost. But along with it, the third seal, we quickly observe now is a black horse. A horse, you see, that brings about the matter of famine, hunger, dearth upon earth. 
one more time that came to pass, and many of those of that day knew it well. Now we come to the fourth seal, and it is loosed. We see one more time a pale horse. But the rider had an interesting name, Death. The rider of the pale horse was Death. We can all imagine, as a play unfolds before us, John, what do you see? Write it for us. And he sees this pale horse, and riding on it was Death what one might call the grim reaper. As those four seals are quickly identified and loosened, we again will see what turned from victory into great difficulty and challenge. It's time for the fifth seal. The fifth seal turns out to be a very critical seal for the meaning of the later parts of the book. John saw as that fifth seal was loosened, the martyrs of those who had died for the Savior... And these martyrs were underneath the altar. Those souls were underneath the altar. They looked defeated. They looked dejected. They looked overwhelmed and overcome. And they cried out, Lord, how long? Until the cause for which we died shall be vindicated. They were told in the next verse, it'll be a little bit longer. Because there's still going to be those on earth who will have to suffer a fate similar to yours, And so it'll be a little bit longer. And then we come to the sixth seal. As this sixth seal is loosened, we quickly observe and appreciate that there's a great deal of tragedy, a great deal of challenge and difficulty. In fact, those who are present, they cried out for the rocks to fall on us and hide us from the face of the Lamb and from the face of God. We see you see a picture of judgment A picture of judgment. Here were some, and they did not want to receive the wrath of the Lamb. And so they cried out for something to hide them, to in fact protect them from that wrath. But of course, verse 17 quickly says, The great day of His wrath has come, and who shall be able to stand? The disobedient won't be able to stand. Those who have been stubbornly pursued of their own way won't be able to stand. And at that point, the curtain closes on chapter 6, and into chapter 7 we go. A powerful message is quickly highlighted. And in that message, we note this. As chapter 7 begins, we notice there's a commandment. Do not harm those until they have received the seal of our God in their foreheads. And we are immediately given this impression that those who have this seal are those who not only are with God. But it's those, you see, who are able to enjoy His protection and that which He affords. And so, the winds are restrained. No damage, no harm to those. Who are these? For the first time in all the Bible, we encounter the 144,000. Many religious groups have chosen to use this in a way that the book of Revelation does not condone or it does not approve. Who are these 144,000? May I be quick to say, 12 of the tribes of ancient Israel are listed. And there's 12,000 out of each one of those 12 tribes. Perhaps before we answer who they are, might we notice what the next verse tells us. Because in addition to the 144,000, there is an innumerable host which no man can number. Think about that a moment. 
a great large number that nobody can actually name. And now John asks the question, Who are all of these? One of the living creatures is told, You know who they are. And we find this description, It's those that are saved. Those who are right with God. Those who in verse 17 of Revelation 7 have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. That's a reference to baptism. Those who've obeyed the gospel and those who thus are protected with Him, regardless what may otherwise happen. Now, back to the 144,000, who are they? That was those symbolically that were saved out of the Old Testament era. Those, you see, who in that day and age and time were in fact right with God. But might we keep in mind, out of that innumerable host, those washed in the blood of the Lamb, that's folks like you and me. Those who, regardless what particular age they may live in, are those who serve the God of heaven. And through the blood of Jesus Christ are made right with God. Look at this blessing that's descriptive of them. They are able, you see, to enjoy God's provision and protection, and they are able to not have to deal with the great heat of suffering and the powerful tragedy that goes with it. At this point, chapter 8 is now before us. As we come to chapter 8, we notice the chapter begins with a great silence in heaven. If you would go back one slide, please, Greg. Chapter number 8. As that chapter begins, we quickly now, for a couple of chapters, will see a fair amount of destruction. A great difficulty that shall come upon certain allotments and peoples. Keep this in mind with me, if you would. Again, to those that first received the book, this was a lesson to them that as strong and as mighty as the Roman Empire now appears, it is opposed to God, and it shall be crushed by the power of heaven. It shall meet its end in the presentation, which will come with the way God deals with those who refuse to submit to Him. And so in chapter 8, you begin to see with me that as that seventh seal is opened, we begin to notice that seven angels begin to sound seven trumpets. Are you beginning to see a lot of the number seven? Seven seals, seven angels, seven trumpets, seven bowls. The number seven is, of course, a very significant number. It's a number that involves completeness, perfection, idealness, if you will. And so... Seven trumpets. These again are going to be remindful of the way God deals with a number of matters. One by one, these trumpets blow, the, the angels blow these trumpets. And it's a very rapid procession. And we notice there's great death and suffering and challenge and difficulty brought on those who in chapter 9, verses 20 and 21, who will not repent. That's a key statement. It's a key verse really for the book. They were given an opportunity to repent. They were given the opportunity to turn to the Lord, but they would not. And as a result, you notice that again, they were met with this terrible reality of suffering, damage, and hurtful character. Among the things in chapter 9 especially, you notice there's another reminder of the symbolic nature, the figurative character of this book. For we encounter a bottomless pit. Can you picture a bottomless pit? We all know literally every pit would have to have a bottom. And yet John here sees a bottomless pit. But there's one who has a key to it. 
And as he opens it, smoke and other things come out. You can picture that as that takes place on a stage before you. Someone opens this door and out comes this tremendous black smoke. It's a reminder of death, hellishness, and challenge that's about to happen. Among that smoke are locusts in large numbers, and they bring about suffering and pain to those who are still alive. As that imagery is developed one more time, it has reference to the pain of infliction due to those who aren't servants of the Lord. Because those who are servants of God, they too will suffer. And they too are often brought to bear challenge and hurtfulness. But they ultimately have a salvation. As chapter number 10 comes before us, you can see near the bottom of that slide, the seventh angel is about to sound. And when that angel sounds, we are told that God's mystery will be completed. It will be finalized and finished. But along the way, John is told something remarkable. Here, though he appeared to be in the audience, he had the opportunity to become a part of the actual presentation of the performance. John, what you see, write in a book. Well, John, take the little book that's in the hand of the angel. The angel, you see, had a book in his hand. John was told to take it and eat it. Isn't that intriguing? To eat a book... You and I might wonder what that means. All we have to do is remember the book of Ezekiel, for Ezekiel was told to take a little book and eat it up too. And so often, Revelation rests upon the background of books like Ezekiel or Zechariah or some of the other prophetical books of the Old Testament. John, in fact, was told, you take that little book and you eat it. And when he did, he found that though it tasted sweet to his mouth, it was bitter to his belly. All of us that are faithful to the Lord know very well something about that. For as much as we love the truth, and as much as we're excited by it, our heart hurts for those who, though they know it, they will not obey it. They, for some reason, choose to remain distant from it. At that point, chapter number 10 draws to its conclusion. Let me say that perhaps in the time that we have before us tonight, we may well cover chapter 11... And at the center point of the book, we may well pause until next Sunday night to finish it as we look at the last 11 chapters then. But right now, as you give thought to chapter 11, notice again we are awaiting the finality of the ending of the seventh seal. But in the midst of it, seven angels are sounding and the seventh angel is about to sound. We were already told that the sounding of the seventh angel would be the ending of God's mystery. I wonder what it is. Doesn't it make us thrive with anticipation? The Bible often does that to us, doesn't it? It builds us up and makes us wonder what's about to happen and what's yet to come. And so as you'll notice at the bottom of that slide, chapter number 11, we encounter something from the book of Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 4, we have an imagery that is built upon here and is presented. And in that imagery we find two witnesses on the side of God. Keep in mind, we've just seen in the last four chapters a lot of those arrayed against God. Now we see two witnesses for God. What are they? We see one of these witnesses that is a powerful reminder. And in that witness, I've already identified them for you. We find that it's the truth. 
The truth does not, nor shall it ever change. I know that forces of men can be arrayed so strongly against it, but they shall never change it, and they shall never alter it, and they shall never conquer it. The truth shall stand. In fact, more than once in this book, Jesus Himself, just like He was in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. In this book, He is called the truth. The other witness, the church. May we never forget the status we have before the God of heaven, held up in Revelation 11 as that powerful witness to one and to all of that for which God stands. The truth and the church. In Revelation eleven fifteen, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our God. That's another key statement of the book. The overwhelming triumph of truth. It's at that point that Revelation 11 draws to its conclusion. I will say that coming up next Sunday night, we will look at dragons, frogs, we will look at matters which otherwise are presented, even matters touching Armageddon. All of that's yet to come in the Revelation. All of it, properly taken, speaks so much to our faithfulness and encourages us so wonderfully regardless what things may befall us on earth. May I say that as we close the book again next Sunday night, we're going to see the city come out of heaven. I wonder what the city will be. I wonder what it will involve. And I wonder who inhabits it. We'll see next Sunday night. As we come to this point in the lesson, may I say again that we've been urged, those that do not repent, Revelation 9 verse 20, are in such a losing predicament. For on them will be unleashed for all of eternity the kind of things that we have already seen tonight. But aren't we reminded that worthy is the Lamb that was slain? to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. The Revelation is an encouraging book of confidence, a book of overcoming, and in fact, I'll use that to close our lesson tonight. The key word of the book of Revelation, if you remember nothing else about the book, at least in terms of what it helps you appreciate, it's this, the key word is overcome. Sixteen times in 22 chapters, that word is used. If we will overcome Satan, self, and sin, we can come over and live with God forever. That's what the book is all about. And in Revelation 12, we're going to be given the threefold approach to defeating that devil. May I go ahead and say that that's going to involve our givenness to the truth, our reliance upon the blood of the Lamb, and our conviction that the way of God is the way that's right. Tonight, what about your life and mine? I hope Revelation has been and continues to be a book of overwhelming encouragement. There are those I know that call it mysterious. Some of the people in the ancient past have said Revelation should never have been in the Bible. That's blasphemous. The Holy Spirit chose to put it there. And it is for our blessing and benefit, and I hope we've been encouraged tonight, and our faith... As strong as it is, may it continue to grow and thrive. Just like the church at Smyrna, Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Tonight, if there's anyone in this assembly that would have a need,
to respond in a public way to the gospel's call of invitation, we'd like to offer that at this convenient time. As we stand in just a moment and sing this song, if you would wish to respond, we would like to know we're here to pray for you, to assist and help and strengthen you in whatever way we can. But all that we can do is merely to attempt to carry out what the Word of God has already identified. This evening, if there would be someone in that situation, we will invite you to come and do so at once while together we stand and sing.